So we're looking tonight at Genesis chapter 20. I'm going to read the whole chapter. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. And the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But... If you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you? That you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God in all this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you dwell where it pleases you to Sarah. He said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It's a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves. So they bore children for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to open your word, to read it together, to think about what it says. Would you please speak to us all tonight? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. We got nothing better to do. Arthur, the brain, Rachel, age 73, 
told the judge. We, we sit around talking. Rachel was sentenced in 2012 to eight and a half years in prison for planning robberies with Joseph Jerry Scalisi, also age 73, and Robert Pulia, a young buck at age 69. But it wasn't, as we say in Arkansas, their first rodeo. Scalisi and Rachel had achieved criminal celebrity status decades earlier after they robbed the 45-carat Marlboro Diamond in London. For that crime, they went to jail in 1984 and were released in 1993. No one ever found the diamond. And old habits sure do die hard. We got nothing better to do. We sit around talking. So they planned to steal again. And they were caught yet again. The Independent, a British newspaper, records the U.S. federal prosecutor's attitude towards Rachel. This thug has the gall to ask for leniency when he does the same thing over and over he is a parasite. Well, before us this evening, we have another thug, another parasite, who commits the same crime. It's deja vu all over again. If you'll remember, it was Abraham, Sarah, and Pharaoh in Genesis chapter 12. Now it's Abraham, Sarah, and Abimelech in Genesis chapter 20. If it was a movie, it would be called Abraham, Sarah, and Another Man, Part 2. Now, if you're reading through Genesis for the first time as we work through the series, then you may feel great relief when you come to Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham. You may say to yourself, okay, we've gotten over the lot digression, literally into Sodom. And we're on a safer, sure path. Now we get to the great story of the good guy. But of course, not so fast. In this passage, we see not only that Abraham and Sarah do wrong, but they also come out looking worse than a pagan king. The godly behave worse than the ungodly. Well, tonight I want us to look first at just the narrative, how the plot unfolds before I make three points at the end. So first, let's just consider the story. If you look down at Genesis 20, in verses 1 to 2, Sarah is taken. In verses 3 to 7, God charges Abimelech with wrongdoing, and Abimelech replies. Then in verse 8... Abimelech and his men are afraid. And then in 9 to 13, Abimelech charges Abraham with wrongdoing, and Abraham replies. And then finally, in 14 to 18, Sarah's return. So just think about the structure. Sarah is taken. Then the God makes an accusation. Sarah is returned. Abimelech makes an accusation. And so right in the heart of this passage is verse 8. Look down at it. 
So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. So at the heart of this passage is the fear that this pagan king has for Abraham's God. And let's think about uh, another, so that's the structure. Now let's just think about the great irony of this passage. Abimelech in this passage actually acts like Abraham. But Abraham behaves like Lot. If you look at verse 11, Abraham worries that he confesses his worry that there's no fear of God in Gerar. But of course, the very heart of this passage is that Abimelech and his men are terrified of God. Abraham's the one who resorts to deception, verse 12, and manipulation when he says to Sarah, oh, it would be a kindness of me to prostitute yourself, uh, in verse 13. But notice that Abimelech is the one who has a sensitivity to the moral orders of things. He is horrified. Verse 9, have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. So Abraham, like Lot, is just looking for an easy way out. But Abimelech is the one who's saying, there's a moral standard and you have wronged me. Abraham, like Lot, in the previous chapters of Genesis, wants to dwell in pleasant and easy places even if others have to suffer. If other people suffer so that Abraham's life is easier in the moment, well, that's a sacrifice he's willing to make. Fear, deception, manipulation, prostitution, whatever it takes for Abraham to dwell in safety. Abraham, who takes on a coalition of kings... In Genesis chapter 12, to rescue his nephew Lot is unwilling to take on a single king in order to protect his own wife. That's the way of ease and convenience. That is the way of Sodom, the way of Lot. And how much more is Abimelech like how Abraham is supposed to be. Abimelech here, when he has this dream of the Lord appearing to him, Abimelech intercedes on behalf of his people in the way that Abraham interceded for Lot and Sodom. Abimelech asks God in verse 4, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? This is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, when Abraham pleading for Sodom and for Lot, says to God, far be it from you to do such a wicked thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? But of course, that was chapter 18 with Abraham. This is chapter 20. And to borrow from a Tom Petty lyric, Abraham is a loser at the top of his game. He's a loser. 
I emphasize that because I want you to see something that is surprising. Notice that Abraham's wickedness, his sin, does not change God's view of his role. Verse 7, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. Now, Abimelech dreams of God. He seems more in the right than Abraham himself. And in verse 6, God even tells him, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And Abimelech is obedient to God. He rises early in the morning, verse 8. That is uh, directly reminiscent of Abraham rising early in Genesis 19. And of course, most famously in Genesis 22, when he rises early in the morning to offer his son Isaac. And yet God does not say to Abimelech, you pray for Abraham. Instead, God says, Abimelech, Abraham must pray for you. Abraham, the one driven by fear, the one whose standard operating procedure, verse 13, at every place to which we come, his standard operating procedure is to expose his wife to sexual violation. You want this Abraham to pray for me? It seems absurd. Even when Abimelech returns Sarah and gives Abraham a thousand pieces of silver, which is an enormous sum. One commentator said it would take a Babylonian laborer 167 years of work to earn it. Even then, I don't know if you noticed it, but Abimelech in, in wanting Abraham's favor and returning Sarah with this great gift, nevertheless gives a little jab that protests his own innocence. I have given your brother a sign of your innocence. Yeah, right. Your brother. Nevertheless, Abraham prays. And Abimelech, his wife, and female slaves can have children, verse 17. The Lord had closed their wombs on account of Sarah, Abraham's wife, verse 18. But now they're open. The people in Gerar can have children again. Well, that's the story in a nutshell. What, what are we to learn of this? What are we to make of this story? Let's think about three things Together, three things. The restraint of evil by God, the relationship of evil to God, and finally, the resolution of evil by God. So, first, God's restraint. God is not the author of sin, God never does evil, but God certainly keeps people from doing evil. Not the author of sin. He is sin's bridle. He restrains people from sinning. He pulls people back. Abimelech does not touch Sarah, verse 6. Why? Well, God says, I did not let you 
touch her. I did not let you touch her. Now, Abimelech may have shown restraint for reasons unknown to us, perhaps some hidden virtue, but most likely, I think it's because he was struck with sickness. After all, in verse 17, when Abraham prays, it's not just the women who are healed. Abimelech himself is healed too. He may have been ready, willing, and yet unable to touch her. And this world is very wicked. But imagine how wicked it would be if God in his great mercy allowed every wicked desire. If he did not pull us back from every wicked desire. Instead, God providentially orchestrates the circumstances of our lives to keep us from doing wrong, even when we want to do wrong. When we think about the wickedness that others could do to us, when we are afraid, as Abraham was, that there is no fear of God at all in this place, we should remember that even the wicked men who want to do us harm cannot if God restrains them. When preaching on uh, Psalm chapter 3, Pastor H.B. Charles Jr. says that when, when David says, God, I want you to break the teeth of the wicked, he's treating his enemies like wild animals. And he's saying, God, you can keep them near to me. They may even surround me, but would you take away their power to do me harm? Surrounded by your worst enemies, you are safe in the providence of God. God can restrain any evil. And you may think your sickness, your hardship, your difficulty is the result of indifferent people or impersonal forces, a product of your genes or your circumstances, but lift up your hearts and look to the Lord because you will see the theater of God's glory. Opportunities that we have lost, problems we have seen, difficulties we have borne. We see these things as obstacles to overcome, and let's face it, they're obstacles to overcome, but such misery can be used by God for our good. God restrains evil, not just the evil that approaches us, but the evil that we would do too if he did not graciously and mercifully hold us back. That's the first point. God restrains evil. Now let's consider God's relationship to evil. God's relationship to sin. In this story, I think we either believe that Sarah's the most offended party because uh, Abraham manipulated her into exposing herself in this way, or if we think that she's a, a willing accomplice, then we may think that poor little old Abimelech is the one that deserves our greatest sympathy. He thought he was getting a woman connected 
to a powerful new visitor in his land, not another man's wife. But that's not how God sees things. Verse 6, it was I who kept you from sinning against me, the Lord says to Abimelech. I kept you from sinning against me. Sin is not simply horizontal between one man and another or another woman. Sin is vertical. If you take another man's wife, you sin against God, especially this particular man and this particular woman. Verse 7, Abraham is a prophet. And what can he do? He will pray for you. And you will live. Sarah, his wife, will be the mother of the son God promised them, their son Isaac. Now, you know, when you offend me, my greatest concern is that you apologize to me. When I hurt your feelings, you're looking for me to say sorry to you. And that's certainly appropriate. But I didn't write the moral law on tablets of stone and give them to Moses. And neither did you. We live in God's world with God's rules. And yet we break them all the time. And we must account for our sin to him. So what's our relationship? What's the relationship between sin and God? When we sin, we sin chiefly against him. No wonder Abimelech and his men are terrified in verse 8. God has said to them, you mess with Sarah and Abraham. You mess with me. Sin is sin against God first and foremost. Well, finally, in this passage, we see the resolution of evil by God, the resolution of evil by God. And we see in Genesis chapter 20 that God resolves evil in one of two ways. Death or life. Death is option one for Abimelech. Behold, you are a dead man. Verse three. If you do not return her, verse 7, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. But there is an option too, life. Now then, return the man's wife, for he's a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. Verse 7, God resolves sin by death or by life. But notice that option two, life, requires two things. Repentance and a mediator. First, repentance. Abimelech is called upon to return Sarah to Abraham. Verse 7. He does so in verse 14. But there's more than mere repentance required. Sin can be resolved by the death of a sinner quite easily. Option one is straightforward. You just die. You're punished by God for your sins. But option two requires more than mere repentance. It's more complicated than that. You need a mediator. 
A mediator is someone who speaks to you on God's behalf and speaks to God on your behalf. Abimelech talks directly to God in his dream, but he still can't get out of his predicament alone. His choice is death by himself or life by another. In order to be rescued from his predicament, he must appeal to the man whom God appointed as a prophet, Abraham. God rescues people from death through a mediator. And let's be honest, Abraham isn't a particularly impressive go-between. He's a fearful deceiver, willing to prostitute his wife for his own safety. Yet God chose Abraham, and so Abimelech must appeal to Abraham regardless. You have life God's way, or you don't have life at all. And that's still true today. You can have life's life God's way through the mediator whom he has appointed, or you can take what you've got coming to you, death. God can resolve your sin with death, your punishment in hell forever, or with life, but only through the mediator he's appointed. Who is that mediator, that go-between, the one who speaks to God on our behalf and speaks to us on God's behalf? 1 Timothy chapter 2. There is one God and there's one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. So you can today choose life. You can call out to the greatest prophet, greater than Abraham, greater even than Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ, who teaches us the words of God and prays for us with prayers that really work because he received what's coming to us for our sin. Abraham and Moses and everybody else, they were sinful mediators. But Jesus is the perfect, sinless mediator. And the righteous life he lived is counted to us, but the wicked life that we live was nailed to the cross. Abraham prays, and Abimelech and his household are healed. And it's a blessing. But it's a blessing for this life alone. How much more, how much better is the blessing that the Lord Jesus pronounces over those who turn from their sin and trust in him? If the Lord Jesus prays for you, you have everlasting life. Jesus says in John chapter 8, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And those listening to him in John chapter 8 actually said, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus says to them before Abraham was, I am a clear statement of his divinity. He was saying, I am God. And the people listening to him picked up stones to throw them at him because they thought he was blaspheming. But Jesus wasn't his God. And if he prays for you, then the blessing is for this life and the life to come. Death shall be for you, but sleep, it shall not have the final word. 
Well, we'll close with one final note. Notice here that everything at the end is made right for Abraham. He hazards his wife for peace and comfort, yet God gives him back his wife, along with the many gifts of Abimelech in verse 14, sheep and oxen, male and female servants, along with the right to settle in the land as a guest of the king, not as a sojourner, verse 15. And then on top of it all, a huge cash prize, a thousand pieces of silver, verse 16. Abraham, in fear of the world, practices deception and exposes a woman precious to him to real and genuine danger. Yet everything goes well for him. But there's another man in Genesis in the previous chapter who likewise acts out of fear, exposes women precious to him to real and genuine danger. Yet everything goes poorly for him. Everything goes poorly for Lot, but everything goes well for Abraham. And the difference can't be found in their individual righteousness, but in the Lord's gracious favor. Well, we've talked some about the, t- the trials of this life. Let's think for a moment about the blessings. I don't know about you, but I'm quick to attribute other people's success to some kind of luck. Being at the right place at the right time, having the right connections, or being born with the right genes, whatever. While whatever success I have in life, well, that's my hard work, my frugality, my determination, and of course, my deep, deep humility. But that's a mistake, right? We wander through life doing our best at times, but sometimes doing far worse than we would have thought possible, and yet we flourish in unexpected ways. I love how Jesus puts it. God makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So if you're, if you're living high on the hog right now, if life is one pork tenderloin after another, then praise God for his kindness to you in spite of your sin. But if you feel more like the butchered pig than the one eating, then remember God's gracious providence and look to Jesus, the one who prays for you and you are healed. Let's pray. Heavenly King, thank you that you love us with an everlasting always and forever love. Thank you that you bless us in spite of our sin and that you have mercifully and freely chosen to resolve our sin, not through the death of the wicked, but through the death of your dear son, our Lord Jesus. May we be grateful for your kindness to us, your love for us, and may we live righteous and holy lives to the praise of your great name. Amen.